You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Well, for the rest of us, let's turn to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 17. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through, seven, 5 through 11, excuse me. If this is your first Sunday with us, we are, are so glad that you are here, and uh, we are just so grateful for your attendance this day as we worship the Lord. And we've been working verse by verse through the book of Philippians, and today we find ourselves in what's often called the Christ hymn from Philippians. So let's look at Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach this wonderful text, Father, we are so amazed at Christ. Lord, as we look to him, as we see what he has done through his humiliation, as he makes himself low for our sake to serve us, but Lord, we're also amazed as we witness his exaltation, as he's lifted high, as he's given the name that is above every name, as he is praised and honored amongst all the peoples of the earth. Father, we pray that this morning, with all that we've seen, with all that we've witnessed, with all that we've sung, Father, we pray that you would give us a vision of Christ, of his humiliation, of his exaltation, and Lord, so be moved at your wondrous grace towards us through your son. Father, we pray that you would be pleased and that you would be honored, that you would be magnified through the preaching of your word this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, on this baptism Sunday, I I can't think of a, a better passage for us to consider than the one before us because it's, it's all about Jesus, isn't it? Amen. It's all about Jesus. And as we think about the lives, as we think about the testimonies that we've heard today from the baptismal waters, Jesus gets all the praise, every ounce of it. He gets all the praise because after all, he is the one who has atoned for our sins. He is the one who has stooped down in our most desperate need to serve and to save us. He is the one who has died in the place of sinners, buried into death. And he is also the one who rose victoriously from the grave on the third day, conquering our sin, conquering our death. And he is the one who by his grace gives us the spirit of God who convicts us of our sin, who causes us to be born again into a living hope, who calls us into salvation through faith. 
that Jesus is the one who unites us to himself so that when we die, we die in Christ. And when we live, we live for Christ as baptism so beautifully pictures. So this morning we desire to do what we desire to do every Sunday at Redemption Church. And we want to give glory to Christ for the great things he's done. That's what we're about is giving glory to Christ because he has served us. He has sacrificed for us. And we long every Sunday, particularly this Sunday, but every Sunday to exalt him in worship. So this morning, that's what we hope to do. The passage before us is often called the Christ hymn. It's a beautiful, a poetic passage that describes the the humiliation of Jesus, but also the exaltation of Jesus. And as we situate this passage within the context of the book of Philippians, as from what we studied so far, we know that Paul is, is calling us to look to Christ as the example for what it means to truly and humbly love one another. So today, may this passage cause us to have our hearts stirred with great joy and thankfulness as we consider consider the humble service that Jesus has given us. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you are you are in the right place. We are so glad that you are here this morning. And it is my prayer that through this text and through God's word this morning that you might be convinced of the greatness of Christ. And so come to repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the first time. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, Paul admonishes the Philippian church to humility by encouraging them to follow the example of Christ. So here's the, the sermon summary, if you want to jot this down, and I'll give you a moment to do so. To possess the mind of Christ, we must follow him in his humiliation and exaltation. To possess the mind of Christ, we must follow him in his humiliation and his exaltation. And we'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But as we begin to work through this text, let's let's look first at verse 5, how Paul sets up the introduction to this Christ hymn as we look at the first point this morning, the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ. So verse five is that kind of introductory verse into this Christ hymn. And and Paul's preparing to transition into the content of this Christ hymn. But it's interesting to take a moment before we really dive into what it says and look at the the origins of this Christ hymn. Where where did it come from? So verse six to 11 is called a Christ hymn because it, it has a poetic and rhythmical flair to it, particularly as you look at it in the original language. And so the words here seem to be some sort of early, Christian creed, perhaps confessed corporately by the church, kind of like we do with the the Apostles' Creed on most Sunday, confessed together as a church body, perhaps before the Lord's Supper. Maybe it was a song that was used in corporate worship in the early church. So there's a great deal of debate on whether Paul actually wrote verse 6 through 11 or not, or whether he is citing a song or a hymn in the early church that, that somebody else had written. So we're, we're unsure of its origins, but most people think Paul actually did not compose this Christ hymn. But rather, Paul is doing like, like preachers do sometimes. Sometimes we quote hymn lyrics 
in the middle of our sermons, don't we? So it's almost like a preacher quoting in Christ alone, those wonderful lyrics to that great hymn, right? In the middle of a sermon. That's kind of what Paul is doing here. This would have been a, a, a song, a hymn that the early church, the Philippian church would have known and recognized and loved. And Paul, as he's teaching on humility, uses this hymn as an illustration. As you look to others as more significant of yourselves, look to the example of Christ. And you know this hymn, you know this creed. We say it all the time. Be like Christ, follow the example of Christ. So, so even though Paul might not be the original writer of this hymn, nevertheless, Paul was guided by the Holy Spirit to include this hymn in his letter to the Philippians, thereby making this hymn the inspired and authoritative word of God. Now, what this hymn is doing in the book of Philippians, well, Remember, it's connecting it, verse 5, to what happens immediately before. And if you were here last week, we looked at verse 1 through 4, but you'll remember that Paul gives us this ethical charge to the church of Philippi to Christian humility, unity through humility. And so Paul connects this hymn to that larger purpose in the letter, particularly in chapter 2, and Paul is urging the church to pursue unity together in Christ through humble service towards one another. So the call to self-denial and service to others is rooted in Philippians 1.27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in verse 5, Paul summons the example of Christ. He calls to the church's attention, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The charge is for the church to follow the example of Christ. And as we consider as a congregation, as a people of God, what does it mean? What does it look like to serve one another? There is no better example to look to than Jesus himself. He is our God. He is our King, but he is also our model. He shows us what the true human life looks like, and he shows us what it means to costly serve and sacrifice for one another. After all, this is what Jesus has done for, for us, for you, for me. So as we look to this Christ hymn this morning, and as we begin to, to dive into the details of this passage, we're going to kind of look at it from two different vantage points. On the one hand, we're going to look at the ethical vantage point, the, the, the charge, the way this hymn shows us the example of Christ and the example that we are called to replicate in our lives together as a congregation, as Christians, as the people of God. So that's one vantage point, the ethical vantage point. But the other vantage point is the theological vantage point. And this is one we'll spend the most time on this morning, since we talked about a lot of the, the ethical commands to charge, to, to serve one another last week. But we're going to primarily spend our time on the theological vantage point, because this Christ hymn provides us a rich and beautiful per, a picture of the person of Christ, who is Jesus. Because this, this passage talks about the preexistence of Christ before his incarnation. It talks about his incarnation. It talks about his humiliation. It talks about the death of Christ. It talks about the vindication and exaltation of Christ. And so this is a huge, significant passage in the New Testament that shows us who Jesus is. And we want to make sure we know who Jesus is, not, not our own imaginations of him, but what, who is Jesus? And we want to look to the scriptures as we do that. So both of these vantage points, the ethical and the theological, they're significant. They're important. In fact, I think if there was more time, we could spend two very different sermons on this passage looking exclusively from one of those vantage points. 
But today we're going to try to, to incorporate both elements into this text as we look through it. But my ultimate prayer is not only would we look to the example of Christ, but that we would be amazed at the wondrous mystery of the person of Christ. And so as we look at this Christ hymn, we're going to break it down into two sections as we look at his humiliation, and then we'll look at his exaltation. So let's look at the first half of the Christ hymn. This is point number two, the humiliation of Christ in verse six through eight. And as we do this, I want to invite you to consider different aspects of Christ's humiliation. I want to meditate on it publicly for a moment in order to try to provoke your soul to being in awe over who Jesus is. So first, I want you to consider the mystery of Christ's humiliation. The mystery of Christ's humiliation. There is a beautiful mystery in this humiliation of Christ. The Son of God did not come into existence on Christmas morning. If you think that, you're, you're wrong, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. Rather, the Son... The second member of the Trinity, he is fully God, fully God. He is eternal. He is preexistence. He has no beginning. He has no end. So the father and the son from before the foundations of the earth lived in glorious harmony throughout eternity bound by the, the Holy Spirit. So this Holy Trinity has no beginning, has no end, and the abounding love that our one God has for himself overflows in a deluge of love for himself. So as the Christ hymn affirms, Christ Jesus was in the form of God, in the form of God. He is God. As John's gospel puts it, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Yet the word, John would say, became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the wonderful truth of the incarnation. Though the son possessed the full rights of his divine status and privilege, he did not see his privilege as something to be grasped. The son didn't cling to his divine glory, but rather through the incarnation, he gladly left his, his divine glory and privilege behind in order to condescend himself into human form. That though he was equal with God, though he was God and is God, he did not count his equality with God a, a thing to be grasped, but rather the son humiliated himself. He made himself low. He humbled himself by becoming one of us, a human being. Thus, on that first Christmas morning, Jesus arrives into the world as fully God and fully man. Though Jesus left behind the rights of his divine privilege he continues throughout his earthly ministry and forever to always be fully God. But yet at the incarnation, we see a mystery, don't we? How the son of God weds his full deity with full humanity. He emptied himself, the scripture says, the Christ himself says, but he didn't, he didn't empty himself of his deity. That's not what the text is saying, but rather Jesus emptied himself of his privilege. He made himself the lowest of the low, lowest amongst all human beings. 
the God who deserves everything, right? If, if the son is God, and he is, and if the son is the creator of the world, he, he deserves everything made for himself. But yet, the God who deserves everything made himself nothing for our sake, for your sake. He made himself low. In Christ, God has become one of us. Emmanuel is his name, God with us. He has stooped down to meet us in our need. He has humiliated himself for our sake. So, so in Christ, we see the mystery of this conjunction, the contrast of the son's glorious divinity combined with frail humanity. These seemingly opposite natures find their union in the incarnation of the Son of God. And it is a mystery that sings a sweet mystery, a mystery that we will sing the praises of for all of eternity before our Father and before the Son and before the Spirit. But next, consider the distance of Christ's humiliation, the distance of his humiliation. The distance of that humiliation is an infinite gap. Think of how infinitely high in glory, the son of God existed in his pre-incarnate state. Think of the distance that Jesus had to condescend to in order to become one of us. Think of how large, how infinite that gap between Christ and his glory and Christ in his incarnation. Christ is the one who has status and privilege. He is God. He is divine. He is glorious. After all, that's who he is. And so if anyone deserved to be exalted, then it was Jesus. He's the only one that deserves to be exalted. Certainly not you. Certainly not me. Jesus is the one who deserves to be exalted. But yet, as God of heaven, he is high and lifted up, deserving a praise from all his creatures. But yet, he stripped of his kingly robes to enflesh himself in the fragility of humanity. As he became low, not just by becoming a man, but by becoming the lowest of men, not as a king, not as a wealthy emperor, not as a president, but as a, a poor Jewish peasant and pauper who lived his entire adult life practically homeless. You see, he was despised and rejected by men, one upon whom men hid their faces. The preeminent deity became the lowest of humanity. But look, right? Look to Christ. Because from the throne of heaven to a cross of wood, he hangs. He left the, the bright glory of heaven behind for the darkness of Golgotha's hill. He abandoned the praise of angels to receive the mocking insults of his human creatures. He cast aside his, his kingly robes of glory to hang naked and exposed in shame upon the cross. He abandoned the comfort of his heavenly home to experience the sufferings of nail-pierced hands. He severed himself from the sweet communion he enjoyed with his father and to become the, the bearer of of human sin. He became obedient, the text says. Obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. How precious is the distance of Christ's humiliation for us. The distance of his condescension cannot be measured. 
The extent of this humiliation cannot be calculated, neither by, by miles nor light years. You can't measure it. No one has stooped lower. No one has humbled himself more than Jesus Christ has humbled himself for you. But next, consider the purpose of Christ's humiliation. The purpose. Why? Why did he do this? For what purpose would the son be obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross? And the purpose is clarified in verse 7 of the Christ hymn. He took the form of a servant, of a servant. Our English translations tend to translate this word as servant, but I think it's best translated as slave, a slave. I suspect we Americans try to, to avoid the word slave because of the connotations of the, the horrors of the memory of the African slave trade. But I think this word slave gets to the scandal of Christ's humiliation better than the word servant does in our English language. Because you can be a servant and still have your own rights, still maintain your own identity, but a slave has no rights. Yet notice what the Christ him describes of Jesus. Jesus, who is in the form of God, takes on the form of a slave, a slave. The God who has all rights gives up every right for us, for our sake. Christ Jesus humbled himself in order to serve us. Christ became a slave for us. So the maker humiliated himself to become a slave for his human creatures. Jesus gave up his divine privilege so that we might receive his privilege as our own. You see, in Christ's humiliation, we are given the spirit of sonship by whom we cry out to God, Abba, Father. You see, the humble servant heart of Jesus is best expressed by his willingness to endure death. And not just any death, the scripture says, but death upon a cross. And there's the scandal. There's the scandal. The extent of Christ's humiliation. Jesus endured the most barbaric and painful and shameful death ever invented by humanity. And we've come up with some pretty nasty things over the last several thousand years, haven't we? But none worse than crucifixion. He hung naked and exposed, bloody and bruised. He hung suspended by nails before a mocking crowd. This is the humiliation of Christ. And for what purpose? For what purpose did the son go through this humiliation of the cross? The purpose of his humiliation was to die in the place of sinners. That's why he did it. To atone for the sins of humanity, to lay down his life as the one and only sacrifice for sin. Jesus made himself low to lift us up. He endured the pain of the cross so that we might be reconciled to God. He came to save us, to wash us, to justify us, to save us through his suffering. And in order to do that, Christ had to be obedient to his father's plan, a plan that was laid down by the father before the very foundations of the earth. And Jesus was obedient to his father, even to the point of death, by becoming the bearer of human sin and by joyfully and lovingly 
being crushed for the sins of humanity. Friend, perhaps you're here this morning and, and the cross of Christ has never really made a lot of sense to you. Perhaps you've always thought Jesus is just kind of an example, uh, a tragic story of someone whose life got caught up with uh, the, the wrong people in politics and it's a tragedy. But no, it's, it's, it's much, much more than that. Jesus is the bearer of human sin. It was the will of the father to crush his son. That's the very purpose upon which Jesus came. And so Jesus came to save you, to redeem you, to wash you clean from your sin. That is the true purpose of the cross. So do not delay this morning, but trust in him. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. He has humiliated himself for you. And that leads us to consider the example of Christ's humiliation. (coughs) The example. This is a moving example for us that compels us. For those who are in Christ, those who've received the service and the ministry of Christ, it, it compels us to imitate him in his humble service. That as we look to one another in this room, as we look to our brothers and sisters in Christ, We are called to serve them as Christ has served you. That's your call. That's my call. The human heart, man, we love to exalt ourselves, don't we? We love to make much of ourselves. We love to to make ourselves preeminent and lifted high. But isn't it ironic that we are the ones who ought to be groveling in humiliation, not Jesus? After all, we we are rebellious We are sinners. We stand condemned in our sin. We don't deserve to be exalted. We deserve to be condemned. We deserve to to receive the full weight of God's wrath for our sin. But yet we perpetually, perpetually try to prioritize ourselves, exalt ourselves, make ourselves more valuable than others every single day. Yet the very one who is exalted, Jesus, he has made himself low. He's made himself low for our sake. The one who deserves divine privilege and praise, he did not exploit that privilege or cling to it. Instead, he willingly and joyfully gave it up in order to serve us. Though Jesus had no obligation to serve, no obligation in any way to serve, he chose to become a slave for us. So that begs the question that if the son of God would humble himself in this way for you, shouldn't you then humble yourselves and serve your brother? If Christ would would stoop down to such a humiliating level in order to serve you, why would you buck up in pride, refusing to serve another human being? There is no task of service beneath a Christian. Christ has already taken the lowest of the tasks. And you couldn't do it anyway. There's no task beneath us. As Christians, we follow the pattern of Christ. And we gladly wash the feet of others. Because Christ has washed our feet. You see, there are many ways we serve one another in the body of Christ. Some of those services are are more glamorous. And some of those areas of service are more menial. But yet the truly humble 
Those who are truly following in the example of Christ here delight to do whatever service is needed of them. You say, it is a service to do what I'm doing now, to stand before you, to, to proclaim the word of God, to teach it publicly. Thank God for good teachers. Thank God for the people who have been gifted in this way, to serve the body in this way. But it's kind of glamorous a bit, isn't it? Be in front, to speak publicly. Maybe you don't think so, uh, but, but perhaps it is. People think that way. But it's not so glamorous to get here early and clean the toilets and set up chairs before others arrive on Sunday morning. Nobody's going to praise you for that. No one's going to pat you on the back. It's often unseen. It's menial. It's gross, even. Have you been to our bathrooms here, right? But it's a service nonetheless. It's a service to be glamorous, to be on the leadership team, to make decisions for the body, to lead in a public way. Thank the Lord for our leadership team. But it is just as much of a service to change the diapers of children in the nursery. Praise God for those people. It's menial. It's gross. I've changed more than a few, right? But it's a service nonetheless. There is no tasks beneath a Christian. Some areas of service might be more glamorous, more in the public spotlight, more, more praise involved, perhaps. Others are more menial. But nevertheless, the truly humble gladly seizes every opportunity the Lord gives to serve. Like Christ, we must be glad to become slaves to one another. We must give up our privilege, give up our rights for the good of others in the body of Christ. So do you selflessly serve others or is your heart arrogantly calloused in pride? I'm not doing that. Now, are there some areas of ministry in the church that you consider beneath you? Are you looking to others as more significant than yourselves or are you looking to yourself as more significant? Are you focusing only on your own needs in the body or are you focusing on how you can contribute to the needs of others? You see, we must, we must follow in the example of Christ. We must humble ourselves. We must serve one another as Christ has humbled himself and served us for he has served us even unto death, even death upon a cross. And this phrase in the Christ hymn, is in many ways a hinge on this passage. Look at what the text says, starting in verse six, right? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And here's the hinge, even death on a cross. You see, the barbarity and crudeness of Jesus's humiliation sinks to its lowest, its most extreme, its most dour in his crucifixion. But yet, at the place of his utmost humiliation, the cross, it ensures his exaltation. And that leads us, thirdly, to consider the exaltation of Christ in verse 9 through 11. And first, let us consider the vindication of Christ, the vindication of Christ on the grounds of Christ's suffering. The father will highly exalt the son, the Christ himself. 
That though he died the death of a criminal, though he died in utter, utter rejection and humiliation, the Lord will vindicate his son. Though he humbled himself to the point of death to his father's mission in order to be obedient to his father's mission, the father will exalt his son again. Indeed, he has. Jesus' day of vindication was the resurrection. And though Jesus was crushed like a lamb that was being led to the slaughter upon the cross, on the third day, he rose again. Bodily, historically, actually has risen again from the grave. And the resurrection ensures that not only... Not only was the sacrifice of Christ accepted by the Father, not only does it ensure that our sin was paid by the death of Christ, it also enshrines Christ as the exalted king over all. As he is despised, as he's rejected by men in, in the cross, he becomes the one approved and accepted by God. You see, the death of Christ culminates in the victory of Christ and his resurrected glory. So Jesus' exaltation provides, provides the pattern of the Christian life that those who will be raised at the last day in the new heavens and the new earth, at the day of Christ, at the day of his return, those who will be raised in the last day are the ones who humble themselves now in repentance. The true Christian has humbled herself before God. She's repented of her sin, and she clings to Christ in faith. And though she might endure criticism, opponents, hardship, suffering, persecution, the Lord will vindicate his children on that great day of the Lord, just as he has vindicated his son. They will share in the victory of Christ. They will share in the resurrected power of Christ. Isn't that what baptism pictures and represents? Not just do we die with Christ in his sufferings, but we are raised in new life as Christ is raised. That those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ have the certain hope of vindication and of resurrected hope, just as Christ has. But next, let us consider the name of Christ. The name of Christ. The, pair, the part of the, this exaltation of Christ includes this bestowal of a name that the Christ hymn says is the name above, above every name. You see, so much of this portion of the Christ hymn is rooted in the language of the book of Isaiah, particularly Isaiah 45, 22 through 25. And, and here is what the prophet records. Let me read this text for you. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. And the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. You can see how so much of this Christ hymn is, is pulling from language here from Isaiah 45. So that leads us to the question, then, then what name, what name is Jesus receiving? Because we think about Isaiah 45. Well, he's receiving the name of Yahweh. 
This sacred, holy name of God. This is the name above every name, and the Father will share his name with his Son. Jesus will be proclaimed as God and rightly recognized as God before the watching world. That the Father will raise up his Son to share again in exaltation his divine praise, the praise that the Son has rightly deserved. Jesus himself is fully God. And at his second coming, he will come again. And all of creation will bow down and bend their knee and confess him as Lord and God. You see, to bend the knee is the ultimate display of submission. The act communicates respect, honor, but it's also a self-admission of inferiority to bend the knee. Bending a knee is in a lot of ways an act of humiliation. It communicates the greatness of another. I'm going to bend my knee to you because I am low and you are great. But yet the glory of Christ's exaltation at that day will be so great that even in people's rebellion and hatred of Christ, they too will bend their knees to him, even in their hatred of him. There is no one exempt in this passage. Look at what it says. It doesn't say some knees will bow in heaven and on earth. No, it says every knee, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You, you understand what that means? From every angel in heaven to every human being on earth to every demon in hell, all will kneel before the exalted and resurrected Christ. You see, submitting yourself before Jesus is not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. Will you humble yourself today before Christ? Or will you be forced to kneel at the coming judgment? Will you submit yourself joyfully today in gratitude and thanksgiving for the love that Jesus has for you, for the way he has served you, the way, the way he has humiliated himself for you, or will you continue to rebel against him in the hardness of your heart? I urge you today to bend the knee before Christ today for the salvation of your sins. Do not, do not be mistaken as we read this hymn and study it, to think that this hymn affirms universal salvation, that everybody's going to be saved at the end. No, that's not what it's saying. There will be no universal salvation, only universal confession. As one pastor put it, that means that either we repent and confess him by faith as Lord now, or we will confess him in shame and terror on the last day, but confess him, we will. You see, if you do not know Christ this morning, I pray, I pray that you would be amazed as we've looked at this text, be amazed at Christ's humble service and sacrifice for you, for us. He has made himself low for, for your sake this morning. And so if you don't know Jesus, we, we implore you to, to confess Jesus today. Receive him as your God and King. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and receive the glory of salvation that he's won for us. However, for those of us in Christ, may we gladly continue to confess him and exalt him now. May we be, be moved by his example. And as we press deeper into the gospel, 
as we ponder with, with greater richness the incredible humiliation of Christ, may we seek to exalt him now. We don't have to wait till he comes back. We can exalt Christ now through the praise that he deserves. He is our God. He is our king, but not only ours. He is God and king of the whole world, and the world needs to hear about its king. May we today, church, may we share in the self-denying humiliation of Christ by giving up our lives for the sake of our fellow men and women in this world who do not know Christ. There are those within this body who need to be served and served at great personal cost. May we serve one another. Of course we should do that. Serve as Christ has served you, but there are those who are scattered around our city are scattered around the world, millions and millions of them who have yet to hear the good news of Christ the King. So may we serve them as Christ has served us, sacrificing whatever is necessary to get the good news of the gospel to them, to call them to repentance and faith so that they too might confess Christ and so exalt in him. Above all this morning, may we exalt him today. As a church, as a people, Christ has humbled himself for you, for me, for us in love, in obedience to his father. So therefore, may we exalt him in worship, even as we look forward to the day, a day that we pray is coming soon in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider, Lord, just how low Christ has made himself for our sake, Lord, we are humbled by that glorious truth. Lord, even as we begin to just scratch the surface to the extent and the distance of your humiliation, Father, we can't even comprehend how low you, you became for us. And Father, you did that to serve us. You did that to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for our sake. Father, we are grateful for Christ. We are thankful for his ministry to us. And Father, we, we want to with our lives to exalt him, to give him the praise and glory that he deserves, the glory that he will one day have when he returns. Father, I pray that those of us who have been ministered by the humble service of Christ, Lord, that we would respond in humble service to one another in the body but Lord, that we would humbly serve our fellow men and women of this world who don't know Christ. Lord, may we sacrifice whatever is necessary. Give up, give whatever it takes so that they might hear the good news of Jesus. Father, I pray the, for those in this room, Father, who, who, who are in rebellion against you, Lord, who have sinned against you and who have yet to receive by faith the ministry of Jesus. Father, they've heard Lord, the testimony of your grace from, from baptismal candidates this morning declared in the ordinance of baptism itself. Lord, they've heard the good news of Christ from Philippians 2. They've heard what Christ has done. Father, I pray Lord, that you would soften their rebellious heart and so lead them to repentance and faith in Jesus. Lord, so that they might join in the song of your people and praising and worshiping Christ, exalting him. And Lord, may they do so now with joy and not at the end of the age in fear. Lord, may they rejoice today in gratitude over the salvation that they can have 
in Christ Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.